according to the man in the box. Right, can everyone hear me? Good afternoon and welcome to the National Library of Australia. I am Nicola Mackay-Sim, the library's acting senior curator of pictures and manuscripts. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. We are grateful to our supporters for making this uh, afternoon's event possible. In particular, we would like to acknowledge the Australian Government for supporting the Treasures Curator, Nat Williams, through Catalyst, the Australian Arts and Culture Fund. And of course, we would also like to thank our wonderful National Library patrons who are supporters of the Treasures Gallery Access Program. Right, over the past couple of years, the library has worked closely with the National Gallery of Victoria curators who put together the truly epic and groundbreaking exhibition Colony Australia, 1770 to 1861, which is now on display down in Melbourne at the NGV Federation Square Galleries until the 15th of July. And look, I'll just warn you, if you haven't been there, I was there on Friday, you need at least one and a half to two hours to get through, the, uh, to get through all the works. Um, there are so many items and it's just inspiring. It's really, really interesting. We were delighted to loan to the NGV some 30 items for the exhibition, including some of our most historically significant and admired works from the early years of the colony. And our library cu treasures curator, Nat Williams, wrote a chapter for the exhibition catalogue focusing on the library's artworks on loan to the exhibition. As Nat states in his published piece, watercolours were the photographs of the early colonial era. The surviving paintings and the artists and stories behind them reveal much about what was here first. Today, Nat will re reveal some of those stories. Please join me in welcoming Nat Williams. have to bear with me today. I'm suffering a bit under a lurgy, so um, I hope I make it through. Um, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and thank their elders past and present for caring for this land we're now privileged to call home. The remarkable exhibition which provides the context for, uh, for Sorry, the remarkable exhibition which provides the context for my lecture today is Colony, Australia, 1770 to 1861, which as you've just heard is on until the 15th of July. As you are, aware, as you are here today uh, listening to me and it would suggest you're interested in colonial life, please do make the effort to go and see the show. It is a, it's a really a once in a generation exhibition. It won't be mounted again in a hurry. The cost alone would be frightening. Um, I should explain at the outset that I was asked to write an essay on exploration for the exhibition book. Uh, the dates for the title of the exhibition baffled me slightly and so I naively asked, um, I understand of course the 1770 reference to Cook landing at Botany Bay, but what, what does the 1861 refer to? And the response was, 1861 is the date the National Gallery of Victoria opened. <laughs> so I, I thought that was a rather... Melbourne-centric viewpoint, but um, it was, it, it, it's my only, it's not a criticism, it's my only sort of slightly wry observation about the show. Um, the exhibition is broad in the media it represents and features early watercolours, drawings, illustrated books, prints, paintings, sculpture and photographs and a memorable selection of decorative arts objects including furniture, fashion, textiles and even taxidermy specimens. From memory, I think there's three stuffed birds in there. Um, the exhibition is conceived in two parts. The first section, Colony, as you can see here, the themes, consists of 640 items, which surely must make it the largest exhibition in modern Australian history. It is displayed over 10 galleries, or possibly 11 galleries on the ground floor. It is a dense and wonderful and sometimes disturbing array of rare and sometimes unique material. 
The library has, as Nikki pointed out, lent over 30 items to Colony, and quite a lot more were requested, which we couldn't simply loan because they were either in the Treasurer's Gallery or more likely they were um, subject to conservation issues. The counterpoint to this exhibition is uh, perhaps to some the challengingly titled Frontier Wars displayed upstairs. It is an indigenous response to the ideas raised by Colony. This sometimes confronting exhibition features art made by a range of leading contemporary indigenous um, artists and old masters such as William Barrack and Tommy McRae. Uh, video, paintings, sculptures and photography are all fulsomely represented and provide a dynamic and thought-provoking counterpoint to the deep immersion in colonial history, uh, discovery, settlement and indigenous displacement seen downstairs. It is an appropriate pairing of narratives which seeks to balance the complex story being told. Some of the better known artists represented in Frontier Wars are J.W. Lint, Arthur Boyd, Brooke Andrew, Marie Clark, uh, Christian Thompson, Gordon Bennett, Julie Goff and Yoni Scars. These are the themes for uh, Frontier Wars. As the NGV write in their introduction to the exhibition, the period that to many was the discovery of a wondrous southern continent was to others an invasion of homelands occupied for many millennia. This powerful exhibition reveals some of what Aboriginal people have experienced as a continuing consequence of colonisation through works of art. You simply cannot visit colony without seeing frontier wars. The exhibitions are finely crafted to complement one another, though they are large displays which both require considerable time and persistence to absorb properly. For those unlikely to make the journey to Melbourne to see the show over the coming weeks, I can highly recommend the really splendid book. I'm promoting a non-National Library publication, $49.95, and it's a, you can hear, a weighty tome, well illustrated with many very interesting and thought-provoking uh, essays by leading curators and writers such as Richard Neville from the State Library of New South Wales, David Hanson from ANU, Joanna Gilmore from the NPG, Alyssa Bunbury now working at Melbourne University and the list goes on. The exhibition curators are for Frontier Wars, Judith Ryan and Miles Russell Cook, and for Colony, Cathy Lay, Alyssa Bunbury, uh, Susan Van Wyck and Rebecca Edwards. And the exhibition also benefited considerably, I think, from the input of consulting art historian and curator John McPhee. My brief for Colony was to cover the search for Australia, its early settlement and inland exploration from 1600 to 1861, a rather broad arc, especially in only 4,000 words. Um, it was a very difficult task and obviously I had to leave a lot out. Um, I'm flattered that they included and then seemed to like what I wrote. So what I'll say today largely comes from the essay entitled Unfinished Business, Australia as a Palimpsest. Uh, to begin though, uh, I will speak just briefly about one work in the, uh, one of the thought-provoking examples in Frontier Wars. The first work you see on entering uh, the exhibition is Chase and Imperial Leather, both by Julie Goff, an Indigenous artist born in Melbourne but who now lives in Hobart. Uh, the 300 shafts of tea tree uh, wood suspended, a forest of sorts, intentionally obscures the work on the right, the triumphalist oil painting of The Landing of Captain Cook at Botany Bay, 1770, by Emmanuel Phillips Fox. Phillips Fox's work, commissioned by the NGV in 1901 through the £1,000 Gilby uh, bequest, was part of a national searching for iconic images post-Federation upon which to anchor our new identity. The much displayed image was subverted by Julie Goff 100 years later and reoriented. It's a powerful and slightly claustrophobic way to commence the exhibition, uh, exhibition journey. Um, as one peers into this suspended forest, one can see small pieces of red cloth snagged on the rough wood. Sorry, they're not great photographs. Um, Goff has written about this work. Chase is about terror, flight. This is the unspoken space and place called Australia Terror Nullius. The tea tree forest between E. Philip Fox's painting and my work, Imperial Leather, holds the trace of a pursuit, torn scraps of cotton flagging and, and red toweling fixed within its grasp bear testament 
to a struggle within this space. A flight of passage took place and took parts, pieces of both works into this otherworldly configuration. I don't believe that Australia has left behind the two aforementioned stories, but is still enmeshed in their dialogues of invasion, control and silencing. Rather powerful words from Julie Goff. Um, <clears throat> I think this is obviously a reference to the pursuit of Indigenous people through things like the Black Line in the 1830s in Tasmania. And such works are a powerful reminder of the hidden narratives of the dislocation of Indigenous lives post-settlement. The heroic and civilised explorer of Philip Fox's painting uh, could be seen as an anti-hero uh, of a counter-narrative in which his landing is reframed as a moment of invasion and pillage for the original inhabitants. And it's the 250th anniversary of Cook setting out this year and uh, I'll come back to that point soon. As one enters colony, this impressive range of Australian Indigenous crafted shields are encountered. The array stretching the length of the entry corridor is a robust response to the visitor to perhaps reconsider the legacy of colonialism and their viewpoints, to leave them at the door, if you like. These venerable wooden objects, crafted with care and pride and great expertise, born from millennia of experience and knowledge, are now displayed as made by unknown artists. Interestingly, upstairs in Frontier Wars exhibition, the subtle and poignant distinction surrounding the heritage items on display is that rather than unknown artists, the term once were known artists is used. This is a fine point, but attests to the reflexive thinking of the five curators who jointly developed the two exhibitions. So the shields you can see here were used by indigenous warriors for protection during intertribal battles and also for parrying spears thrown during tribal payback ceremonies. They were also used in ceremonial dancing and traded between clan groups. Each shield bore the traces of its maker, a story carved into timber, timber and decorated with incisions and ochre. They were, especially for a people who didn't hold great store in possessions, an important item with embodied significance which we may now know, never know. To progressively meet each of these shields is a powerful and thought-provoking way to start this colonial journey. It says a great deal about our history, really, that the stories of the shields' makers were not recorded as part of their acquisition and as they made their way into often major cultural collections. Sometimes this was because they were trophies taken with force rather than given in friendship or traded. Some of you will recall the Indigenous shield collected by Joseph Banks, uh, now in the British Museum, which was the focal point of the Encounters exhibition here at the National Museum a while back. This symbolically important object was appropriated from Botany Bay after shots were fired at the local people. They fled, had all the fishing spears taken, and trinkets were left in their place. Cook records in his Endeavour journal, held here in the collection, that the beads, etc., left for the children were still lying untouched, untouched in the sand the following day. He notes, probably the natives were afraid to take them away. This is hardly surprising given what had occurred earlier. Cook's eyes, however, were to be further opened as he looked, listened and gained awareness, I think, as he progressed up the East Coast. On the 22nd of August, 1770, James Cook records in his Endeavour journal, I now once more hoisted English colours and in the name of His Majesty King George III took possession of the whole eastern coast by the name of New South Wales, after which we fired three volleys of small arms which were answered by the like number from the ship. The sound of those gunshots is echoed for nearly 250 years. The story of Australia's discovery, exploration and settlement that followed it is a catalogue of intentions and accidents. The vast landmass which provided almost infinite challenges to explorers had been met head on by its indigenous owners for over 65,000 years. Against this record of habitation and successful adaptation from song lines to fire stick farming, uh, European forays along the shore, then tentative ventures inland seem measured and predictable and some exploratory ventures were to be notoriously ill-fated. However, as the land opened to the sound of the axe, horse, bullock dray and the gun, Aboriginal presence persisted. Centuries later, this, the history of European encounter with this land is a work in progress and is constantly being rewritten. 
The images in Colony richly illustrate moments of engagement with the landscape and its people as the continent was gradually being revealed and then documented. The search for Terra Australis Nondum Cognita, or the Southland not yet known, actively occupied European minds for centuries. That a landmass might be hidden in the vast expanse of the Pacific was an intriguing idea and, and potentially a profitable one. Geographers in the Northern Hemisphere had understood from the time of the Alexandrine Greek mathematician Ptolemy's rediscovered mapping that a southern landmass must exist and specula speculated upon its exact location, name and potential wealth. Ptolemy posited that there must be a landmass in his Geographia, uh, written in about 150 AD. This is a, a copy we have, a, a 1540s copy here. At, uh, as the expanse of the Pacific became better known through European exploration, the potential scope for Terra Australis incognita correspondingly decreased. Still it, it still, it would not be until the late 18th century that this land was finally mapped and then usurped. Many Australians still believe that James Cook discovered Australia despite much evidence to the contrary and not just the indigenous names abundantly covering our maps. Dutch, Spanish, French and English names pinpoint moments of encounter and of misguided perception as knowledge was formed about Australia. An obvious example, Rotnest Island, literally meaning Rat Nest Island, was a name crafted for local quokkas mistaken uh, as hopping rats and named by a Dutchman, Willem de Vlaming, in 1696. As you can see here, the island is illustrated along with the black swans in Francois Valentin's uh, multi-volume history, The Old and New East Indies, printed in the Netherlands in 1724-26. Uh, Valentin was a Dutch minister, naturalist and author and employed by the VOC in the East Indies. The sandy island off Perth was known as Wajamup to the local Noongar people. The now popular tourist destination was to be a lethal place for Aboriginal men as it was used to imprison thousands of them over nearly a century, from 1838 to 1931. From a Dutch discovery in which marsupials are mistaken for vermin, to a barbaric colonial prison for the original Australians, to a schoolies holiday retreat, our landscape is overwritten by its history. Its scarification is only visible if one looks hard, listens closely and is prepared to not look away. Vlaming's visit to Wajamup was 90 years after the first recorded mapping and landing on the continent by Europeans. Captain Willem Jansoon charted more than 300 kilometres uh, of the Gulf of Carpentaria in the Dyfken in 1606, and his landing party was repulsed by the Wick people, with nine sailors losing their lives. And uh, this is an image of the Battle of uh, Bantam in 1601. This is the Dyfken pictured. I just thought I'd use it as a nice image. Um, <clears throat> Jansoon's voyage was under the auspices of the Virenigd Uster Indisch Company, known as the VOC, which was uh, established in 1602, two years after the British East India Company. The world's first publicly listed trading company, the VOC, was a multinational business which boomed for almost two centuries. Coincidentally, also in 1606, Louis Vez de Torres, the Spanish voyager serving under the Portuguese commander Pedro Fernandes de Quiros, returned from the Pacific Ocean through what became known as Torres Strait, a channel proven and mapped by Cook 170 years later. De Quiros had earlier sailed with the Spanish navigator Mendana in 1595-96, searching for Terra Australis Incognita. This led to his investigation of Australia del Spirito Santo, or the southern land of the Holy Spirit. De Quiros wrote the famous presentation Memorials, the earliest printed record of discovery and plans for settlement of a southern continent, <coughs> in which he announced his and Mendana's discoveries and petitioned the Spanish monarchy to fund further exploration and settlement, and we have one in the collection here. The VOC established itself in 1619 in Batavia, now Jakarta, and pioneered the new Brower route to the East Indies. The direct path from the Cape of Good Hope, 7,500 kilometres across the Indian Ocean towards Australia, meant that in the days before longitude could be accurately plotted, that intentional and unintentional encounters occurred. 
Studying the place names along our western coast provides hints about the numerous precursors to Cook who have received little of his fame or, more latterly, his infamy. <coughs> Dirk, Hartog marks the visit, uh, Dirk Hartog Island marks the visit of that mariner in 1616, the first European to visit our western shore aboard the Eendracht. Hartog left a, butin, a beaten pewter plate signposting his discovery, which is on the left. In 1697, de Vlaming appropriated the plate and left his own engraved plate. This object, a kind of, almost a kind of palimpsest, a surface on which writing has been partially or completely erased to make room for another text, recorded both visits. A century later, in 1801, Jacques-Félix Emmanuel Amelin, on Naturaliste, part of the ambitious French uh, expedition led by um, uh, Nicolas Baudin, located the plate. It was later taken to Paris by Louis de Freycinet, commanding Lourenie in 1818. Dirk Hartog's plate is now held in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and the de Vlaming plate is now in the West Australian Maritime Museum. Uh, although, it, I have to say, it lived here in the National Library's collection from just after the Second World War until um, the early 50s, I think, and then was given to the West Australians. We had to prize it from their grasp for the, tri uh, the mapping show a couple of years ago. It's funny how these things happen. <laughs> the Australian coastline has witnessed many overlapping moments of discovery, conflict, reprisal and celebration. There were also grim tales. The gruesome story of the wreck of the flagship Batavia under Francisco Pelsart in 1629 on the Hootman Obrolis Islands uh, off the west coast of uh, Australia and its depraved consequences, including mutiny, rape and murder, attest to the limits to which travel could descend in the period. The story's publication in uh, the Netherlands in 1647, with graphic illustrations, which you can see here, some of them, raised European consciousness of the wreck and of the southern continent. The small format of the book belied the terrors contained within it. The memorable images are some of the earliest printed representations of Australia and, centuries later, examination of Pelsart's book and of his journal led to the discovery of the Batavia wreck in 1963 and that wreck is now displayed as part of the WA Maritime Museum. Abel Tasman's two momentous voyages commenced in 1642 when he was appointed the commander of the ships Heemskirk and Zeehan to explore the landmass south of Java. Tasman wanted to investigate the possibility of a route from Neutzland in easterly direction, that's the bottom corner of Western Australia, Neutzland in an easterly direction through the Pacific towards South America. Commissioned by the VOC's Governor-General in Batavia, Anthony Van Diemen, Tasman charted the western and northern Australian coast for the first time and the south of the island we know as Tasmania, which he named for his uh, superior. The west coast of New Zealand and parts of Tonga and Fiji were also revealed, along with the northern fringe of New Guinea. Then, in 1644, Tasman charted the southwest coast of New Guinea and much of Australia's previously unknown coastline. The original journals of both of Tasman's historic voyages have been lost, but an abridged manuscript version exists as the Heidekopper Journal in the State Library of New South Wales collection. With this, within this important source document are inserted six evocative pen and ink coastal profiles of land sighted in Van Diemen's land on the 4th and 5th of September 1642, seen here on the screen, directly after Tasman had claimed it for the Dutch. These are the earliest known extant drawings of the Australian coastline and were created by Isaac Gilsemans, the cartographer and chief merchant upon the Zeehan. The next coastal profiles of Australia were to be created by the young Quaker painter, Sidney Parkinson, the artist aboard Cook's Endeavour 130 years later. And as a brief but significant digression here, uh, another 200 plus years later, the remarkable Tasmanian contemporary artist B. Maddock created a, an additioned 40 metre long ochre drawing called um, Terra Spiritus, 
with a darker shade of pale. This memorial work is a massive coastal profile of Tasmania, as if seen from a, a circumnavigating boat. It is a moving meditation on the loss experienced by Tasmanian Aboriginal people, whose world changed irrevocably after colonisation in 1803. Their language can be seen floating on the ocean, while European names claiming the country are printed above, uh, printed below, sorry. And um, that copy comes from the National Galleries collection. Before Cook's journeys of exploration, William Dampier visited Australia twice, but is little recognised now. This English explorer, keen observer, writer and buccaneer spent three months on Australia's west coast in 1688. Aboard the Signet, he made landfall near King Sound and later wrote an engaging account of his experiences there. The volume published from... Uh, the volume published from his journals, A New Voyage Around the World, 1697, became a great success and had brought him to public attention. Captaining the Roebuck in 1699, Dampier visited Shark Bay and if it had not been for the disastrous shape of his ship, which halted his passage south from New Guinea, he may well have been the first person to reach Australia's east coast. Well before Cook and Joseph Banks' botanising at Stingray Harbour, later Botany Bay, Dampier collected specimens and carefully recorded his perceptions of the landscape, marine environment, plants and animals, and the people encountered. In 1703, Dampier's A, New, A Voyage to New Holland was published, and its simply rendered engravings of Australia's flora and fauna are the first recorded European images of New Holland and predate Endeavour's achievements by over 70 years. Dampier's contemporary influence was such that it inspired Jonathan Swift to write Gulliver's Travels. James Cook read Dampier's books aboard Endeavour as he explored the Pacific between 1768 and 1771. Cook's remarkable achievement in navigating the east coast of Terra Australis Incognita was to permanently graft New South Wales onto New Holland and to lay, lay the continent open for further investigation and possibly settlement. Largely completing the map of Australia, Cook effectively erased the curiously drawn east coasts of previous maps and created greater certainty for future voyages. James Cook referred to Dampier on three occasions in MS1, his Endeavour journal held here. Firstly, with regard to uh, Aboriginal people met at Endeavour River. They did not want any of their four teeth, as Dampier had observed in his uh, book, uh, on the western side of this country. And then he mentions them again in relation to um, Dampier's observations about Timor. Um, sorry, certainly Cook's arrival in Botany Bay in 1771 marked the turning point in European engagement with Australia and its people. His initial interactions with the Eora people at Botany Bay were fraught with misunderstanding, as we've heard. However, by the time Cook and his companion Joseph Banks saw and ate their first kangaroo at Endeavour River in North Queensland in July and spent time with the locals, the Gugu Yimitia people, a kind of understanding appears to have been reached. A moment of rapprochement is created by a, a little old man who approached Cook after a shooting incident. He carried a spear, a lance without a point, and an understanding was negotiated not to harass each other further. This is a poignant moment and one not generally referred to by critics of Cook's expedition. It seems somehow to signify the possibility of new beginnings. And in fact, John Maloney, the eminent Australian historian, has suggested the date of that might be an appropriate Australia Day in the future. Um, Cook's voyage was an enlightenment project sponsored by the Royal Society and funded by Joseph Banks. It was a remarkable and unprecedented undertaking which produced great riches from the natural history collecting of Banks, Daniel Solander and Herman Diedrich Sporing, <laughs> ably assisted by Sidney Parkinson, the young artist. Hence the evolution of the name Stingray Harbour into Botany Bay due to the profusion of botanical specimens acquired there. And you can see in the exhibition down in Melbourne on the left is uh, Banksia serrata, and on the right is Eucalyptus uh, platyphylla, sort of one from Sydney area and one from Endeavour River area, which is a nice book ending. They're from the Royal Botanical Gardens collection in Melbourne, but they were transferred from the British Museum years ago. 
The Endeavour voyage was the precursor to Britain's scientific voyages such as that of the investigator under Matthew Flinders. It inspired the French to dispatch the ill-fated La Perouse to the Pacific and it succeeded and was published with the British voyages of Byron, Wallace and Carteret. The assistance Endeavour received from Tupai, the Raiatean polymath who guided and interpreted for the voyage until his untimely death in Batavia also cannot be understated. His profound knowledge of the Pacific enabled him to assist Cook in navigating and he drew a chart of many of the islands known to him, which Cook later copied. And we had that in the Mapping Our World exhibition a couple of years ago. It was a great treasure. Um, a printed image of the rainbow lorikeet captured and kept alive by Tupaya at Botany Bay is a highlight of the colony exhibition. Natural history illustrator Peter Brown used the, bat, used the bird now an ex-parrot to coin Monty Python, in his new illustrations in zoology printed in 1776. And you can see the difference between the live bird and the dead bird on the right. Um, we are fortunate enough to have acquired an earlier and very beautiful gouache on vellum uh, drawing of the same lorikeet made by Moses Griffith in 1772, which is on the left. Griffith was the young artist contracted by collector and prolific author Thomas Pennant Banks passed the lorikeet onto his friend Pennant soon after his return to England. While Cook was often valorised, Joseph Banks was a polarising figure, as visual evidence in the exhibition suggests. The president of the Royal Society for 40 years, Banks was respected for his knowledge on many subjects, including New South Wales, Merino sheep, currency, earthquakes, botany and exploration. He is immortalised in Jasperwood by Wedgwood, However, at the same time, Banks was pilloried in caricature by Matthew Darley. The amusing images you can see here, the simpling macaroni or the fly-catching macaroni, both from 1772, were a play on the idea of the English dandies undertaking the grand tour. Banks's famous quote regarding his grand tour was, every blockhead can do that. My grand tour should be around the whole globe. Um, the advocacy for, of Banks for settlement and exploration in New South Wales and his continuing interest in the colony's progress is reflected in his copious correspondence. He wrote thousands of letters on innumerable subjects and kept in touch with every governor up to Macquarie. We hold many in our collection here. Banks petitioned to travel with Cook's second Pacific voyage but was thwarted in his expansive plans and had to settle for Scotland and Iceland instead. The thousands of words documenting Cook's Endeavour voyage, the images arising from the flora and fauna collected, the people witnessed and captured in paint, the specimens and artefacts, along with the charts drawn, ultimately made their home, uh, way home to England. Most had survived the clutches of the barrier reef, but they were then dispersed, leaving future scholars to unravel the complicated histories of the voyage through its objects, images, and many words handwritten and then printed. Cook visited Australia once more in January 1777 at Adventure Bay on Bruny Island during his third Pacific voyage. John Webber, the official artist on board Resolution, captured images of a local indigenous man seen here in the drawing and then above in the print. Um, close proximity, and also he did a, a drawing uh, of a woman and child, which is turned into a print. Close proximity to young Aboriginal women was not something achieved on Cook's 1770 visit. Here, Cook's associate, Second Lieutenant James King, described how a young mother carried her child. Weber's enduring sketches were to be translated into print in the final Cook voyage narrative, penned by King, but not for seven long years. Surgeon's mate, William Wade Ellis, was a capable, though lesser-known artist who was on discovery and then transferred to Resolution, where he painted with Weber. Later, impoverished, Ellis published a narrative of the voyage, an unapproved and unpopular measure, which nevertheless did not stop it running into two editions. And uh, there are his watercolours, uh, the bottom one from our collection and the top one from uh, SLV and then Sarah Stone's wonderful drawings of post-cooked uh, uh, post shells collected. And it's a great example of how the exhibition pulls together collections from all over the country in one sort of wall. Um, 
Cook became irascible and flogged his men exponentially more as his three voyages progressed. His life was to end tragically and rather unpredictably on Valentine's Day, 1779, on the beach at Kealakekua Bay in Hawaii, where he had first been received as a god. His legacy was commemorated in many forms by a grieving public, on medals and in portraits, paintings, pamphlets, pantomimes and in poems. This composite image by French theatrical innovator and artist Delauthaberg, based on Weber's work, was a public souvenir of the dramatic final scene from the acclaimed West End Theatre pr um, production, Oh My. Cook, the Enlightenment hero, ascends to heaven, ascend, uh, heralded by fame and Britannia, and carefully avoids viewing the sight of his demise below. While circumnavigating the globe, Cook also managed to successfully implement measures to avoid scurvy, the seaman's curse. Cook was obsessed with scurvy, and its prevention and served sauerkraut at every meal. He spelt it S-O-U-R, kraut, O-U-T, at every meal. Uh, sauerkraut, wort of malt, carrot, marmalade, and concentrate or robs of uh, orange and lemon juice were issued to fight it. Wherever possible, uh, fresh vegetables and fruit were added to the sailor's menu. For example, scurvy grass, wild celery, and kerguelen cabbage. Sounds tasty. Strangely, however, Cook hated bananas. So there's a fact you probably didn't know. The Royal Society awarded him the Copley Medal, its greatest honour for his indefatigable efforts to defeat the plague of the sea. Much of the evidence of this passion for knowledge was presented by his talented artists, Sidney Parkinson, William Hodges and John Weber. Cumulative, they crafted a new view of the world which intrigued European minds while subtly encoding messages of conquest and of domination. Competition for knowledge, land and resources was to pit Britain and France against one another and to lead to coincidences such as the arrival of La Perouse's ships alongside the first fleet in Botany Bay in January 1788. There was also the meeting of Matthew Flinders and Bodan at Encounter Bay in South Australia 14 years later. These unlikely correspondences attest to both nations' serious interests in colonising and profiting from the lands that were being discovered and written into history. The first step was to establish a strategic foothold in the Pacific. Settlement in New South Wales had been speculated upon not long after vo Cook's voyage and was aided by banks. Within the National Library of Australia's extraordinary Rex Nankavell collection, there are many settlement firsts, including the earliest map of the encampment at Port Jackson. This curio is now one of the greatest rarities in bibliographic collecting. There are only three known copies. Its schematised view, captured by the ex-Navy midshipman and convict Francis Folkes, is dated 16 April 1788 and identifies the 11 ships that bore the convicts and marines as well as the Governor Phillips Mansion, which is down here, um, which dominates the rustic scene. It is a convict's eye view of his constrained world where hard labour, poor food, harsh weather, corporal punishment and life in tents took its toll. From this unlikely, insubstantial and so socially fluid base, modern Australia has grown. The remarkable Rex Nankavell, um, a New Zealand-born, London-based collector, amassed a vast collection of Australasian material, as he liked to refer to it, worked out that he probably bought two things a day for 60 years. His acquisitions generally focused on those that explored, mapped, governed, proselytised, settled, farmed and innovated in the Pacific region. They were acquired by the National Library in 1959 and up until his death in 1977. Some of the most significant of the National Library's loans to Colony come from his expansive collection. For example, the apotheosis of Captain Cook, Captain John Hunter's uh, First Fleet sketchbook here, um, Augustus Earl's Colonial Views and his wonderful portrait of Bungaree, uh, Richard Reed's memorable portrait of the survivor of the Boyd Massacre, young Betsy Broughton, and Dorothy English Patey's uh, truly beautiful sketchbook of Newcastle uh, natural history specimens from the 1830s. Also from Nankerville's collection and real highlights of the early part of the colony display are these three important works dated circa 1790, 
by the Port Jackson painter, now thought to be at least five unknown painters that were on the first fleet. <clears throat> one is of a mubi, a ceremonial Eora figure painted up for a funeral. That's the one on the right. Uh, and the other is a portrait of Nana Nana, or possibly Nanga Nanga, the brother-in-law of Benelong. There is also uh, at the top uh, a very early topographical view of the entrance into Sydney Harbour. It's amazing to see how these images were being you know, created at that time. The natural history sketches and views that were produced in Australia's early days were made by anonymous and known limners. They were both professional and amateur artists, though the difference in quality in the work was not always that vast. They were often convicts, mostly forgers, and sometimes, though, lay scientists or curious sailors wanting to take home souvenirs of their remarkable odyssey to the end of the earth. Captain of the Sirius and later Governor of New South Wales, John Hunter, also recorded his observations in his charming, if naive, sketchbook drawn on the spot between 1788 and 1790. You just saw that before. Um, sailors, such as the midshipman of the Sirius, George Raper, added to the visual and strategic recording of the colony, and his maps attest to the ability of naval men to record the world passing before them. Plants, birds, fish, people and marsupials all intrigued the early visitors. The brilliance of the light, the dramatic weather, the beauty of the harbour, the variety and profusion of nature surrounding them all inspired detailed documentation from the colony's earliest days. Irrespective of whether those doing the imaging were officials or dependents of the colonial empire, the outpost needed recording for strategic, scientific and aesthetic reasons. In the pre-photographic era, it was generally words or watercolours that illustrated the moment. They were often then carried homewards to official or sometimes domestic archives. The images then found their way into print and were often multiply reprinted and circulated in the British antiquarian book trade. The detailed mapping of the continent commenced in earnest after settlement. Matthew Flinders followed his successful navigation of Tasmania on the convict-built Norfolk with a coastal survey to Queensland. He successfully enlisted the assistance of Bungaree, the leader of the Broken Bay people, to mediate with local Aboriginal clans. Bungaree would later sail with Flinders again on his epic circumnavigation of the continent between 1801 and 1803. The now famous portrait of the circumnavigator by the peripatetic artist Augustus Earle captures him poignantly in later life. Bungaree has aged and is wearing discarded naval regalia and the king plate engraved <coughs> with the words Bungaree, chief of the Broken Bay tribe, 1815. The king plate was bestowed upon him by Governor Macquarie. Earl is the ultimate recorder of the visual richness afforded by travel as it could be experienced globally in the early 19th century. His imagery in watercolour is without rival in its scope and variety and in its documentation of the growth of the British Empire as it extended into Asia and the Pacific. Travelling from Britain, uh, from America and Brazil to Tristan da Cunha and on to Van Diemen's Land, New South Wales and New Zealand, Earl revelled in the landscapes and the peoples he met. Unfettered by any agreement to paint for an artist or patron, uh, a patron or employer, he could travel as he wished and record what he wanted without interference. His local views, whether of a convict road gang seen here, a new road snaking into the conquered distance, a sublime waterfall in the Blue Mountains, or an overnight rest for explorers in the <coughs> Illawarra rainforest, all capture the re relentless progress and movement of colonial life. Indigenous people stand in, literally, to remind us of what they have given up or perhaps are still yet to concede or reveal. The message in the claustrophobic painting, a bivouac of travellers in Australia in a cabbage tree forest, daybreak 1838, seems clear. There's no way out of here without us. <coughs> Pardon me. Unlike Earl, the inexperienced 19-year-old British artist William Westall was enlisted to draw to order aboard Flinders' investigator while it circumnavigated the continent for the first time. Westall was a probationary student at the Royal Academy 
when he was appointed to the six-man scientific team assembled under Flinders. He was actually the third choice. They finally got somebody who would go. The group included the talented botanist Robert Brown and the natural history painter par excellence Austrian Ferdinand Bauer. Having reached King George Sound in December 1801, the crew explored and gathered 500 specimens while Westall drew the commanding views. Investigator then proceeded along the, Austra the Great Australian Bight, exploring the South Australian coastline and proving that there was not a channel through the centre of the continent. The rigours of the circumnavigation were considerable. Men were lost, and it is surprising that the works of Westall and Bauer survived, though some were damaged or destroyed. Um, Cape Catastrophe, which you can see in the middle here, uh, is named for the disaster when investigator lost her cutter and eight men, including Flinders' close friend and associate John Thistle. Thistle's Island is uh, directly below it. Eight islands were named by Flinders for the missing crewmen. Flinders left his own memorial and engraved copper plate commemorating this melancholy and disastrous event. It read, uh, it ended, sorry, Nortici cavete, or sailors beware. In early April 1802, Flinders met Bodan at what became known as Encounter Bay. Despite the fact that England and France were at war, the two captains exchanged information in the spirit of scientific investigation. Flinders continued on his voyage around Australia, but was to be plagued by unseaworthy ships. The crew of investigators suffered from dysentery after visiting Timor for repairs. Flinders then headed, uh, sailed for England in the Cumberland, another unsuitable ship which limped, leaking, into Mauritius. This was where his luck, such as it was, ran out. Flinders was detained as a spy by the French for the next six years, which both shortened his life and thwarted his desire to circulate his peerless maps he was to create of Australia, his preferred name for the continent. The tardy Westall only made 160 surviving images of Australia's barren coast, which he found lacking in picturesque qualities. However, his drawings and watercolours of the coastline and its features are arguably the first examples of Australian landscape art and are among the finest drawings achieved here. The coastal profiles he subtly paints are both beautiful and revealing, even if he found the subjects lacking. Westall's portraits of Aboriginal people are memorable and occasionally shocking. As seen here, his sensitively recorded images of the Aboriginal rock art seen on Chasm Island off Arnhem Land are the first such images in our history. In all, the library lent six Westall drawings to Colony. You can see some in the background here along with um, works by uh, Le Sir from Bodan's expedition. There's Flinders' map. There's two of Bauer's works. And there's Freycinet's um, atlas and map in the foreground. And there's those three birds I was telling you about before. Um, <coughs> the Westall's portraits, uh, sorry. Westall's travelling companion, the fastidious, middle-aged Bauer, the expedition's natural history painter, managed to create nearly 2,000 drawings on the voyage. Arguably some of the most beautiful natural history images ever created, Bauer's images of Australian plants and animals are visually sumptuous and absorbing. Working with him was Robert Brown. The combination of artistic skill and botanical rigour led to an unprecedented images of botanical a great botanical value and beauty. Sadly, the published output of Bauer's extraordinary work was quite modest. As the 19th century progressed, European eyes turned inland to begin the complex documentation of the landscape and its dramatic features. Such was the scale of the colonial enterprise being undertaken and of the landmass being explored that while Sydney was growing into a modern city on the eastern seaboard, the Swan River was only just being explored. Opportunities for curious men to view and record the landscape on expeditions were available if they were game and had some connections. Meeting and imaging the looming horizons of the colonial landscape was busy work. The artists undertaking such a daunting task often had to be multitaskers. 
They included Frederick Garling, who you can see here, who was a customs officer and watercolourist. There was Dr. Frederick Rushbrook Klaus, who was a ship surgeon and a painter, and Thomas Baines, the indefatigable storeman and artist. Following on in the tradition of their naval predecessors, these artists recorded the landscapes, the natural history, and moments of encounter with Aboriginal people as they traversed and began to understand the country. And I should just point out that in the exhibition is that wonderful painting of the uh, Baines shooting the crocodile, of the alligator or crocodile. Uh, we have the study for it in, the show, uh, in our collection here, so I thought I'd include that. Contemporary explorer artists, George French Angus and Samuel Thomas Gill, both immigrated to South Australia. The colony was lucky to have two such keen sets of eyes to record the expansion of settlement and the particularities of life there as it evolved. Indeed, it is hard to imagine how much less richly Australia's colonial past would be represented if these artists had not risen to the challenge. Angus's connection to the colony was via his father's South Australian company, a commercial venture George managed to avoid, preferring the itinerant life of an artist. Angus's achievements are manifest, a painter, natural historian, publisher, museum administrator and conchologist. His various life achievements seem to swamp gills. The great watercolourist of amusing scenes from colonial life, Gill added hugely to our sense of the texture of that life, whilst his own slowly unravelled before him. He had an intense interest in exploration and documented Charles Sturt's uh, departure from Adelaide from, uh, in August 1844. Along with his depictions of the minutiae of daily life and events, horse races, <coughs> hunting, mining scenes, gold miners, Aboriginal people, dogs, bush workers, he will also be remembered as the creator of iconic images of Australian exploration from his time with the 1846 Horrocks expedition through South Australia. The watercolour you see here, country northwest of Tableland, 1846, features Horrocks left and Gill right atop a hill in the immense sparseness and aridity of the interior. Significantly, both men look not at the vast unmapped way ahead, but at the art created on the spot. This seems a fitting and rather grand image to finish this lecture today, covering the exploration of our continent and how it was imaged and translated over time. Australia as a palimpsest continues to be overwritten in the present now. However, we are more acutely aware of what was here first and what has now been lost. Thank you very much. Enlightening as always. Um, we probably have about five, maybe ten minutes for questions if anyone's got anything burning to share with us all. Uh, we do have microphones, so just pop your hand up if you uh, have something to say or we'll ask Nat. Surely somebody's got something to say. As I said, it was very enlightening. Too enlightening. Too enlightening. Perhaps you'd like to um, have a chat with Nat. Oh, we, we do have a question. Oh, Hello. they're all coming thick and we'll fast We'll just give you now. a microphone so it can yep. be um, heard. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, um, very much enjoyed that. Um, one thing that always troubles me slightly is, is um, um, I mean, you've given us a lovely picture, just a, a quick foray through... Uh, through a small um, window, yeah, um, and the the artworks and and the pieces that 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 we pull together to make history here, you know, to understand it. Um, fortunately, a lot of these are housed in national collections or state collections and that yes. sort of thing, and they're all linked, so so um, so we can understand the sequence and so forth. But I worry about. Um, a lot of the private collections um, uh, and and the other pieces that are out there in Australia and and the UK and other countries, yes. um, which are still missing, that uh, that that will help us to uh, make the story more complete. Do you have a 
that's, about that? It's a very interesting question. Um, yes, uh, it's interesting that, you know, I talk a lot about Rex Nankerville, who was an extraordinary collector. The only collector that I can think of in Australia who closely comes to that sort of magnitude of collecting and the breadth of collecting in, in one sense is, is uh, Kerry Stokes. And so he's been amassing. Uh, so, for example, Thomas Baines was commissioned for the Royal Geographical Society to go on the AC Gregory expedition in 1855-1856. And those images, that image you saw of the watercolour was from that. Uh, we've got a few watercolours and some lantern slides and two paintings, but the rest of that collection pretty much ended up in the Royal Geographical Society archive in London. And because of the GFC, they realised, sort of, um, that they had a looming pension problem. So they had to fund all their uh, retiring workers and people that were going to be leaving, and they were worried about how to do this. So they decided to create, a bit like John Howard, non-core collections. Um, and the non-core collection that they decided to sell off um, was the Baines collection. And it caused a huge stir in England because the English are not big on deaccessioning, really. I think Nicky would agree with me on that. Americans do it quite happily, the British less so. But the fact that it's now ended up in a private collection in Australia is great in the sense that it's handy and they could lend it for, you know, um, edited bits of it for that exhibition in, in Melbourne. Um, and we can only hope that in, in the fullness of time when those great collectors, some of whom we have very close relationships with, Kerry Stokes and some other private collectors that we are our supporters and patrons and support even the cultural, you know, the, the Treasures program. Uh, in the fullness of time, one would hope those collections will filter into the, um, the national or state collections. And as you made the point rather nicely that Trove for example, now links all those collections and so you can get so much more data when you're looking for it to solve a problem about continuity and, and what came first and what came second and who came, you know. So um, we work, Nikki works, I don't work terribly hard at doing this, but um, it, it's something we do have on our horizon to try to make those works um, come into our collection. It's extraordinary, I was standing in, I did a book launch on Thursday night in the shop and. Uh, a woman came up to me and introduced herself and she'd been told to come and say hello to me from a woman who I know who's a conservator. And she just suddenly produced out of her bag all this extraordinary material. And she was a descendant of the Bonapartes. She was American, but she was a descendant. She lives in Canberra. And she pulled out this thing, which was about this big, and it was a piece of Napoleon's coffin, uh, a piece of the shroud that wrapped him, and a piece of the uh, uniform that he was wearing, all neatly stitched onto this little thing about this big. Oh, oh my God, how extraordinary. But anyway, so I said, well, look, here's my card. Please don't go away. Uh, might well, that's right. Well, I told her we have a huge tablecloth with Napoleon's bees on it, so she was pleased to hear that. So hopefully she'll think kindly of us when she wants to uh, move that collection on. And I think it's interesting that as generations change, collections once were probably held onto more than they are now. I think generationally people want more minimalist environments. They don't even want a lot of books in their lives. I find that surprising, but anyway. Um, so it may be that more of that material comes through uh, the auction market. Yeah, I think the auction market, but also um, I think these people, when they start realising what they actually have, um, they do get in contact with us more often than not. And the collecting institutions, we're all very aware of what our collections are and where we might bring in more material. And, and so we do let one another yeah. know. We, we don't compete so much as, I suppose, uh, we don't collude, but we, no. we uh, certainly, certainly help one another to find the right home for items. Yeah, one person, yeah. I think we could go a long way in Australia to um, celebrating our collectors more, you know, <laughs> at every level. And interestingly, you know, I had somebody, I'm writing, trying to write a book on Rex Nankerbell. And I had somebody tell me, oh, no, nobody's interested in collectors, which I found a surprising thing to say. Because the most, arguably, one of the most um, successful programs on Australian television for a while was that collectors shut. 
People loved it. And it had every sort of collection in it. You know, and there are people out there collecting all sorts of things, some of which are of national significance, some are not. Um, so I, I think, you know, collecting is not going to go away. It's going to become more transparent in the digital era. And we would think, thank kindly of us. Um, there's always the Cultural Gifts Program, uh, CGP. And, and so I was just thinking, the show Antiques Roadshow yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, funnily enough, even though you often watch something that's been six years, you know, since the initial airing yeah. of it, it's thrown up a lot of material. And I think it also enlightens a lot of people within families to actually go out and get something looked at before they take it to the tip, you know, if they don't like it. So. Sorry. Um, just a, a, a final one. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much for bringing that together. It was wonderful. Thank you. Um, you'd be <coughs> familiar with the book by Mark McKenna, um, On the Edge, yeah. and the story of the survivors, I think <coughs> possibly the Sydney, um, that uh, they, they crashed, landed, and ended up um, trying to survive on Preservation Island. And several of them went ashore. They also crashed in the boat, and then they walked all their way up to um, Sydney. The acknowledgement of those very few survivors from what 17 started and what six or three ended, yeah. I can't remember without referring to it, they were the ones that actually um, told the story of being able, of, of what it was like along that coastline yes. and the wonderful connection with our Indigenous people yeah. and, and what that was like. So the likes of Bass, of Flinders and Bass actually knowing that story um, made their journey. And I'm just wondering, in your story here, is there a need for acknowledgement of those survivors um, of that time? Because that then got things moving further, didn't it? That's a very good point. Yeah. And not two weeks ago, in, in this very uh, lecture theatre, we had a, an interesting uh, lecture by uh, a fellow who came in here, specially uh, funded through the uh, benefactors. Um, who'd worked in the collection for about three months, and she gave a lecture on uh, survivors, people who had survived with the agency of Indigenous people. Uh, and there are lots of those stories, and she outlined, what, six maybe uh, on that night and uh, in, in an hour-long lecture. And I think those stories are becoming more apparent. We've published a book on it ourselves uh, recently, and I think they are getting more currency, and it's, you know, it's quite clear. You know, there's... There's all sorts of interesting stories about people that were lost on the West Australian, you know, put ashore on the West Australian coast for being, you know, fractious and difficult, and then interbreeding with local people, and people have done genetic research to try to find out whether they can trace those that genealogy or whatever you call it, genetics anyway, in people's. So I think it's a, a work in progress, but uh, thanks to Mark McKenna and other good writers uh, for doing that work. There's a lady there, just on... Thank you for that. Uh, there are also many stories of survivors who helped with the Indigenous people by the explorer Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel William Light, who was the first Surveyor General of South Australia. In fact, he had to explore 1,500 miles of coastline or select the best site for the capital of South Australia from 1,500 miles of coastline. And he was instructed to be able to communicate with the natives and uh, either taking someone from England or finding an interpreter there and with paying them for native animals uh, on the basis that they were their property. So if the survey camp was going to need kangaroos or something, mm. they, they engaged the natives to hunt with them and they like, were specifically instru instructed to consider them the property of the, of the Aboriginal people. The now, yeah. my... my so that, that story is, there's the many stories of lights, surveyors being saved from being bushwhacked or being rescued from drowning by the people of Rapid Bay. And we have a very, very outrageous situation in South Australia where a non-traditional custodian group, a, a neo-political uh, group has formed and obtained recognition, annihilating the history. There's a cultural genocide happening in South Australia despite the highly authoritative and first-hand eyewitness reports of the surveyors and others. Not only that, but Light's discovery or exploration of the Port River and mm -hmm. the first accurate mapping and charting of that river has been annihilated from history. He was the person to, to accurately locate 
and chart the entrance to the Port Adelaide River, which on his death, uh, Arrowsmith erased from the charts. I wonder if you'd like to comment on removing William Light from Arrowsmith's charts and denying him the credit for being the first to accurately position the Port Adelaide Harbour. As I often say, it's not a perfect world. Um, the, the fact that... What's fascinating about maps is that, you know, everyone assumes, as they do now with Google Maps, that it's an accurate and, you know, realistic assessment of what was there at the time. But, in fact, we have to understand that they're incredibly nuanced artefacts, that they are subject to all kinds of political, social, cultural, economic imperatives which shift the focus. And that goes for Google Maps as well as it does for Arrowsmith uh, and Colonel Light and people that were mapping. So I think it's a very good point. I mean, history is continuously, I suppose, rewriting itself and people... Um, ebb and flow and ebb and flow. And I mean, this was a very general lecture because it was based on a, what had to be a very condensed sort of image over a period of time of 400 years. But I mean, I think, um, I hope shows like Colony and this f fabulous book, which will remain long after the show closes, will, will actually encourage people to continue their interest in our colonial culture and life. There are some things in the show which I didn't deal with because they're not from our collection, but there's a map, for example, of indigenous killings, massacres. You know, it's actually drawn very beautifully, you know, here, here, here. And it's just tucked into a corner in the exhibition. And it's chilling when you see it. You think, my God, you know, there's an actual person has gone after the fact and said, that, that happened there, that happened there. And you sort of think, you know, that. so it's a warts and all view of our life um, in Australia. And that's what I think is very good about it is that they took the effort to seriously do a balanced um, <coughs> assessment of our cultural achievements by having Indigenous, contemporary Indigenous and not so contemporary indigenous material balancing up the colonial stories, which can read as being triumphalist. I mean, I ended on that point because, you know, like, I think that's such an extraordinary image. The fact that the bloke gets shot by his own camel, you know, it's like just a, this great story. Um, and it's about the centrality of art and the moment, recording the moment, not the big narrative, you know, like the triumphant, we conquered, we won, we claimed, we took it. It's the intimacy of two blokes looking at some drawing, going, wow, that's pretty good, you know? Like, and I think that's why I chose it to... They chose it for the exhibition for that reason, and I chose to end the, the, the lecture on it. Um, but thank you all for coming today. I would urge you once again, see if you can go and see the show. And if you can't, it is a... You're welcome to come and have a look at the book down the front. It is a, uh, an amazing book. Uh, there's a very good essay in there by David Hanson on depictions of Indigenous people, which is very worth reading, raising some of those issues that were coming up before. So thank you. <laughs>